Welcome to Pro Corner. I'm your host, Austin Serhoff. This week is part one of my conversation with Cal Ripken Jr. Cal is the greatest Oriole in the history of the Baltimore Orioles franchise. He's also, in my opinion, the greatest shortstop in modern baseball history. And probably most importantly, he was a teammate to my dad, so I got to watch him play for four years from 1996 to 2000 and see his greatness up close at the end of his playing career. Uh, as many of you may know, Cal's greatest single achievement was his consecutive game streak. Uh, 1995, he broke Lou Gehrig's record of 2,130 games. Um, any baseball fan listening knows that's known as 2131, and it's an iconic moment in baseball history. Um, I think the most incredible part of that is he kept going for another 500 games. He played in another, yeah, 501 uh, straight games and ended his streak at 2,632 games. In the episode, we talk about the streak, and I specifically asked Cal to zero in on the aftermath of the streak and what it was like resetting himself. And honestly, I probably should have done more research before I asked him because what made Cal great and what made the streak happen for him is he didn't see it as some big achievement to beat Lou Gehrig. Um, he discussed in the episode how it's just if he could best serve the team by playing that day, then he would play. And every single game for a decade and a half, he best served the team by going out there and playing. Part of that being because of his status, like I said, is the greatest shortstop of all time. Uh, Cal revolutionized the position by being a lot taller. Uh, shortstops are generally short, one of the shorter players on the field. And also being able to hit for power. Um, shortstops generally don't have a big bat, and they hit for average. So Cal's unique placement on the field relative to his size and his bat made him so that he was super valuable every single day to this franchise. And we dig in a little bit to, like I said, his mentality about the streak and what it was like at the end of it. We talk about... The couple years after the streak where the Orioles were arguably the best team in baseball and what his role was on it as a veteran leader and at that time pretty much the preeminent Oriole uh, in the franchise's history. Um, and then we also dig into the not-so-serious side. I've known since I was a kid that Cal would host uh, pretty legendary pickup basketball games for probably about a decade at the end of his uh, playing career. And it would attract everything from fellow Orioles to Ravens players, um, college basketball players in the area, and even NBA players every once in a while. So um, if you're looking for the lighter side of things, he also breaks down who could ball on the Ravens and the Orioles. Um, his success rate guarding uh, one specific NBA player that stopped by. I know I'm someone that when I watch a sport, there's just something about basketball. I guess it's because pickup is so prevalent that when you watch, I don't know, Ray Lewis tackle a guy, you wonder like, I wonder if Ray Lewis can drill a three, like how good would he be at pickup basketball? Or even musicians every once in a while. So like, I love watching the celebrity pickup game or the celebrity all-star game every year and seeing like, huh, can like, can Drake cover uh, the, the education secretary? <laughs> can Kevin Hart hit a three? So if that sort of fun stuff is for you, We've got a nice balance of Cal's fun scouting reports on Orioles and Ravens players when they play pickup basketball, uh, along with 
um, some serious insight into just how Cal was able to maintain such a level of excellence while also showing up to work without a break longer than any player in the history of baseball, right? It's one thing to show up to work every single day, and some people display that kind of toughness. Um, other people, when they play or when they go to work or when they do their job, they're amazing at it, but can't consistently sustain that level of excellence every single day. And Cal did both, and he did it for 15 years when he was work when he was doing the streak. So we get a nice insight into how he does that. We get some fun stuff, and I think you guys are going to really enjoy it. So let's get to part one of my conversation with Cal Ripken Jr. All right. All right. I'm here with Cal Ripken Jr., uh, one of the greatest Orioles of all time, arguably the greatest, uh, depending on who you ask, chilling in his house in undisclosed location in Annapolis, Maryland, uh, in a beautiful wooden library. Cal, how you doing today, man? I'm doing pretty well. It's, uh, this could be just a fake Zoom background, you know. Uh, <laughs> it, it's a really good office uh, space, and uh, it's uh, very comfortable being here, so uh, glad to be with you. Yeah, I'm happy that you're here. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you today. I've been listening to a lot of stuff that you've done over the last couple months. Um, like a lot of people, I'm sure you've had a lot of time on your hands during COVID, and that's led to a lot of great content and a lot of different outlets. So for today's exercise, I was actually hoping that we could focus on something that people don't often talk to you about. And I was hoping to talk to you about your career after you broke Lou Gehrig's record um, on 2131, 1995. Does that sound good? Sure. Cool. So let's just drop it in right there. Uh, 2131 happened September 1995. I think I read a stat that it was one of the three most watched baseball games of the entire decade. You know, 22, um, what was it, 22 minutes uninterrupted that you got to take a lap. People had a standing ovation. And then you had to wake up the next day and you had to keep playing. <laughs> yeah. So to kind of give people an idea of how to reset goals and keep moving forward after something that you've reached such a pinnacle with, like that game streak that took over 13 seasons to get to. Um, let's start with that last month of the season. What was that last month of the season like for you? Well, let me give you a little context is that I was hoping that the next day, that, uh, you know, game number 2132, mm -hmm. um, game you're playing in, um, nothing would change because the approach for, uh, in order to get to 2131 wasn't always about, the, uh, it wasn't about the finish line. It wasn't about trying to become uh, the person that broke Lou Gehrig's record of that many consecutive games. Heck, if I had my choice, I'd rather have more home runs than Babe Ruth and Hank Aaron. Uh, I'd rather have more hits than Pete Rose. Um, all the things that, an accumulation of excellence, uh, you know, from stat-wise. Stat but uh, it was important for me to be there for the team. I mean, it is, an, it is a simple approach, and my dad really gave it to me, um, is that your job is to come to the ballpark ready to play. If the manager mm -hmm. chooses you to play, you play. And that's the approach that I lived to um, all those years. And just because you reach the pinnacle, you know, of breaking that record, I didn't want to change my approach at all. And so I did play 501 games afterwards. And it really wasn't anticlimactic. 
the purpose of playing, um, even if you're on a team that uh, is not so good, you know, you're not a playoff caliber team, your still goal is to win the game and, uh, mm-hmm. and meet the challenges of today. And uh, the hardest part about the streak was getting through those moments of rebuilding. When uh, the one year my dad was fired, um, 1988, we lost the first seven games of the season, uh, the first six games of the season, and then we lost – they fired him and we lost 15 more in a row. So we were the laughing stock of the, of the league. To mm-hmm. keep your goals and your approach the same way then was more challenging. Because I, I say it's the easiest thing in the world to play for a winner. Because then the alignment of your goals, you come to the ballpark and everybody is trying to do that one thing, which is um, it might not be making the great catch or, or hitting the great home run or, or driving in a winning run. It might be turning the double play in the fifth inning to stop a run from coming in. So mm-hmm. you're making contributions based on the right way it's supposed to be played. So that was the hardest part about the streak. But once it was over, there was a sense of uh, relief or uh, say the monkey was off your back because towards the end, everybody in the world wanted me to break that record. You know, I had mm-hmm. a few critics before that um, mm-hmm. that uh, would get at on me all the time if when I went to a slump. Um, and uh, I was stubborn enough to continue to come to the ballpark with the same approach, and the manager still wrote my name in the lineup uh, all the time. But after the uh, record was broken, in my mind, I was thinking, okay, now we can get back to normal. And normal is, you know, you come to the ballpark and you're ready to meet that challenge. So I did play 501 more games, not as a stamp that says, you know, uh, I could, but it was just that's what I believed the approach was. And Mm -hmm. so uh, 30 – 1995, I guess I was turning 36 the next year. So mm-hmm. I had that point in my career where I went 30, 36 years old to 41. And we were good for a couple of years, which, which totally lifted me up. You know, uh, the 96 season was fantastic for me personally. The 97 season, uh, I moved to third base. Uh, we had Mike Bordick over. We, we, we won the pennant from the first day of the season to the last. Um, and so those couple of years were really easy and really good. Um, didn't worry about a streak, didn't answer any questions about the streak. Um, mm-hmm. didn't have, that wasn't part of the challenge. So I don't think I rearranged the goals, but I was so glad to get back to a sort of a normal approach help from everybody else's concern. So it was almost, it was easier for you to keep doing the thing that you had reached a pinnacle for because mm-hmm. the pressure of it was gone. So by the way, this, that was excellent because you just kind of laid out the thesis paragraph for this whole podcast that we're about to zoom in on, the successful years, uh, bringing in Mike Bordick and all that stuff. So let's dig deeper into that. Were you preparing yourself at all? Because I understand that the streak was a reflection of you trying to contribute to team goals, um, but the team hadn't made the playoffs in, was it seven season at, seasons at that point? Yeah. It, it, was a, it was a significant drought at that point. Long, long drought, yes. So we're, and at the same time, you mentioned that when you get closer to the goal, it's so much easier to get there, especially when everyone's rooting for you. It's almost this, this hyperdrive that kicks in that like nothing's going to stop you from getting there. Did you have to at least prepare yourself at all for the day after? Because even if people say like, okay, I, you know, I don't care about this at all. It's, it is hard to not you know, package up those 13 years and be like, whoa, that was amazing. And then feel some sort of change the next day. So were you preparing yourself uh, for 21, 31 in the months leading up just to make sure that you didn't feel any sort of blip? No, it's interesting. You say, um, I didn't feel any pressure at all, you know, until they started planning a celebration for it. Okay. So it wasn't until 21, 31 or 1995 
And we started the season, uh, we were locked out because the year before ended in the cancellation of the World Series and a strike that happened mm -hmm. in August, uh, August 12th, I believe, of 94. And so we were all worried uh, um, about whether the baseball would be played again and when it was going to be played again. They canceled the World Series. They locked us out of spring training. And then finally, I got a chance to go. We, we agreed the ugly business side um, went away and we were able to come back and play baseball. We had a hurried spring training, three weeks to get ready, which I found out is probably exactly the right time for a regular player to get ready is you only need three weeks, but you mm -hmm. got to commit early and play, play all the way through. And then going into that, uh, that season of 95, um, the first day of spring training, the media was just all over the place. And I kept thinking, wow, um, this is different. And uh, John Maroon and I, we sat down and we recognized that uh, this could be a challenge that we needed to deal with, you know, how we could deal with that. And the planning at, at home for the date that was there, all of a sudden there was a, a finish line in somebody else's mind, not in mine, that, uh, that created pressure. And so then, I, then it felt like I, didn't, I couldn't let someone down. You know, so I didn't, I didn't get any added motivation for doing it. I just continued to do the same thing. And I was always really okay with if I ever got hurt, you know, playing or I got hit by a pitch or I got something else, that's the normal course of uh, when you can't play. And so I always thought that if I played hard, it would insulate me from those, those type of situations, that uh, I was resilient. I could play through some nagging injuries, and which I did. And some, some of those injuries to other people might not have been considered nagging. But to me, I was able to uh, learn about myself and learn that I could still compete and contribute at a high level, even though when I was less than 100%. And that was a really good thing. But that year, as it got closer and closer, the media scrutiny was a little higher. Um, you were doing more mm -hmm. press conferences. You were talking about the streak, the streak, the streak. I would have preferred us to be in the pennant race. It happened that we weren't. We dropped back out of it. And in September, the California Angels, those three-game series, uh, 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 in uh, 95, that the tying record the, um, and the, the record-breaking game was against the Angels, and they were um, uh, vying for a playoff position. So that was kind of our playoffs in a way, but the focus shouldn't be on me, shouldn't have been on the individual accomplishment, mm -hmm. it should have been on the team, and I was hoping that would be the case. But once it started to be more on me, then that did increase the pressure a little bit. Like, I can't let everybody out down. They're planning this big celebration. They've made all these plans. Yeah. Now, now um, you start to think about what if I don't make it? And I never, ever once thought about that. I mean, I played basketball like a maniac in the offseason, and I kept thinking that prepares me for the season. And if I would happen to get hurt doing that, then that's all part of uh, preparation for the season. So I never really worried about anything. People Magazine, I think, asked me if, uh, if um, uh, I'd stop using kitchen knives or anything sharp that was around, or you look at uh, household accidents that happen sometimes. And I kept thinking, um, do you think I changed my approach or my thought about what I do away from the field um, any differently? But people started to think that way, and I started to think, man, there's an expectation for me to get there. Mm -hmm. So that was the only pressure I ever felt. And so the day after, it wasn't a letdown, per se. It was uh, actually, I rejoiced in the fact that uh, I wouldn't have to deal with all that anymore, that it okay. would just get to come into play baseball. So I, I didn't have to rearrange goals. I didn't have to. And it really wasn't a mental letdown. It was, mm -hmm. uh, I think I was exhausted a little bit from dealing with all the things that, that came with that. 
And, but I, I do remember a sense of relief and a sense of, um, yes, that I can get back to being a, you know, a, just a baseball player and you worry about what happens from a challenge of baseball every day as opposed to some of these other things. It is interesting the difference in perspective between you who's actually doing it and everyone else who, you know, is watching it externally and taking in the enormity of it that it's completely different. You're invested in the team goals and just trying to contribute and everyone else are the ones that are, you know, pumping this thing up and making it something bigger than you even wanted it to be. Mm -hmm. um, I want to move on to the 96 season, but just as a brief fun thing, you mentioned the basketball and someone I'm going to mention a couple times throughout my pod, this podcast, uh, my dad, BJ Seroff, was a part of those basketball games. Uh, briefly, who was, who was the best on the team? And if it's you, you could say it's, if it's you, you could say it was you in these legendary pickup basketball games. No, I mean I was fortunate enough to have uh, you know pro players that played out there from time to time. Um, some guys that were playing in the NBA at the time. I remember Sam Cassell used to come out quite a bit, and uh, it's interesting to get a glimpse into the highest level of basketball and how uh, easy they do things. Just uh, like your dad, BJ, and I would say they look at us and it's easy taking batting practice and doing that kind of stuff because that's what you do all the time. From a baseball player standpoint, Ben McDonald was pretty darn good. Okay. Ben McDonald, ben McDonald played at LSU. I think he started 10 games when Shaq was there. And so uh, he, he really knew, and he was tall and long. Uh, he really knew how to play. Ryan Miner, when he came out, Ryan Miner was the player of the year, I think, in uh, one of his conferences, got drafted by the 76ers in the first round. Um, he was really good. Uh, and so there were a lot of guys. Mike Messina was pretty good. Okay. You know, um, uh, I'm trying to think of all the guys that have been through there over the years. I used to like to have the Ravens players come out towards the end. They all came out, uh, and I put them all on the same team. They were the most gifted athletes that you ever could imagine. Um, all of them had 40-inch vertical leaps. They could uh, move fast and quick and were strong. And uh, but sometimes they didn't all play together on the basketball court. They were doing their own thing. And we had yeah. a group that we played with. So. Um, I can't say that there was one guy out there that was, uh, you know, better than others, um, you know, or, okay. but, but the best, bas best baseball players, certainly, uh, um, that played basketball was the two I mentioned, Ben and uh, Ryan Miner. That's incredible that someone like, because around that time period, Sam Cassell was in the prime of his career. So, oh, yeah. just because of, so of your height and because of, you know, it was your house, were you the one that would always be stuck on Sam on defense? Because it's like, Cal's the tall guy, let's, let's get him in there. Or we, what, was the, what was even the strategy there? We regularly had uh, six, nine, six, ten guys out there on the floor many times because uh, I was uh, uh, six, five, and, um, and I had a little bit of strength with me as well. So many times I got matched up with a six, ten guy. You know, I didn't have to <laughs> – Worry about uh, guarding the faster guys or Sam Cassell. Although Sam Cassell's bigger than you think he is. Um, yeah, I mean they look they look small on the court next to Shaq, but then you're like, oh wait, Sam Cassell's like what six four, six five, like your height. And Sam was funny because Sam uh, Sam ran his mouth and talked the whole time. You know, just uh, in <laughs> in a fun sort of way, like don't do that. You know, uh, uh, I'll do this, and then uh, oh, told you, <laughs> you know, <laughs> he'll shoot and make it, and. Uh, so it was just fun to watch that level of, uh, of basketball and the way that uh, – and he could do anything he wanted uh, um, with anybody guarding him on the floor. So uh, um, he, he was fun to be around from a personality standpoint, and he really enjoyed coming out and, and being in that environment and playing. 
the levels of basketball and briefly before we move on and we have to get back to the the serious grown-up talk um the levels of basketball that you see at pickup always astound me i mean like i'm a mediocre pickup basketball player and i feel like i can guard your average guy at the y and then someone who was you know a bench warmer at your college in college will come and just work all of us so i can't even imagine an nba player showing up to a pickup game i'm sure that was pretty amazing uh-huh. Well, I, I loved I loved seeing the difference and being challenged that way. Um, I was pretty good. Um, I played a lot. I could compete in those games. But you're right, is the uh, guys that went to James Madison or Richmond or uh, uh, Mount St. Mary's, where I had a good program that we had a number of people down. There were people, um, George Mason, uh, um, the one guy that went, played on the final four team of George Mason. Mm-hmm. Uh, he came up and he was six, six. He had all kinds of skills. He was the big, he was, he was a big guy, but not big in, in terms of, uh, but he, he dominated down in the post, even at the collegiate level. And they played in Europe a number of times. And just to watch the, uh, what they could do and how they could do it um, was, uh, was really interesting to me. So I always try to get the best talent I could at, at the gym for the purpose of, uh, of uh, getting a, getting a big league feel for, uh, when you're, when you're playing the game. Mm-hmm. Did you guys, who were the, were there any Ravens players that came out that you could mention? Cause I imagine that's pretty amazing having, you know, someone who's maybe like six, two, six, three, 250 pounds and can run a four, five, four, six out there playing basketball. Well, the night, uh, actually Chris McAllister broke my rib, you know, my last spring training, on, uh, <laughs> oh my 10 gosh. days, 10 days before spring training, I was guarding Tony Banks. And Tony Banks is a really good player, too. Um, and they do have the physicality to jump. But McAllister could, could, uh, could rise up. I mean, he had, I think he had the biggest vertical leap. And it seemed like when he ran and changed directions, he didn't make a sound. Like, you normally you hear a screeching of uh, shoes on the court. You know, he was, uh, he was moving at such a high, fast rate. And uh, when I broke my rib... Um, he was posting somebody else on the other side. I was guarding Tony Banks, and uh, they lobbed a pass in. I came over and intercepted the pass, but I caught it at the same time he was coming up and I was coming down, and mm-hmm. my ribs were exposed, and he hit me in, in the rib with, with uh, his shoulder, and it bent over top of his shoulder. And I knew pretty quickly that uh, I couldn't breathe but half breaths. So I played three games, three more games. <laughs> you played through it, yeah. Played through it and then put some ice on it at the end, but I kind of knew something was wrong. And uh, it's kind of funny. Um, in the end, I took that risk my whole career. And then right at the end of my career, when I had to decide how much fuel I have in the tank, um, I, was, I, I had back surgery the year before that. And finally, I had my body back where I could push it and get in good shape. So I was in the best shape that I'd been in in a number of years. And I was looking forward to taking that to spring training um, and say, okay, where, this is where I am now. You know, I'm, you know, I, I, I still could compete and I could do all those things, but I was really, it became a physical issue because of the back surgery towards the end of my career. Mm-hmm. And I would, I never know what would have happened because I broke my rib and I missed the first five weeks of spring training and I came back too early. And that was the year that I decided that it was enough that, mm-hmm. uh, that I was going to retire because we were going into a rebuilding mode again. Yeah. And, but, but I would have loved to find out, I was going to play basketball for the last 16 days in a row. I was playing six days a week. Um, I, it was a fever for it. And I wanted to finish off my conditioning of all the things I was doing. So when I went into spring training, it would really, it really take. And I, I wish that I would have had the opportunity to feel 
where I was baseball wise at that point. Who knows? Could I squeeze out another year? Um, you know, uh, maybe, or could it change things uh, a little bit? Um, but I still played till I was 41. <laughs> so I played uh, 20, 21 parts of 21 years in the big league. So um, mm-hmm. I'm very happy and content with that. Yeah. Um, that was amazing, by the way. I didn't anticipate talking as much as we did about the basketball, but I love little stories like that. Um, let's talk about the 95 offseason. And because throughout your career, there was big ebbs and flows with the Orioles team performance. You, you started out your career, I think, year two, year three with a World Series title. And then there was kind of an ebb downward in the middle. And then after year 13, 14 for you, the team is all of a sudden amazing again. Mm-hmm. So that offseason, Palmero was brought in the year before, 95. Um, you got, like you said, about 95 when we were talking about it, you guys had a pretty good team, not a playoff team, but pretty good. Was it an intentional load up offseason bringing in people like Roberto Almore, like my dad, BJ Serhoff? Um, were you guys loading up to try and make a real run at it? Uh, were there conversations with you? I understand that a lot of players tend to not talk to the front office, but at the very least, was it, was it an exciting thing for you before the season started? Did you feel a different energy in the air because of that? And you could get excited about team goals again, or were you kind of tapering yourself into that and seeing how things went? Well, I mean, you're hopeful every year, no matter what you do, what you have going into spring training, you could look at your roster and say, do you have a competitive playoff caliber team? And you could make a guess, but uh, the season in 89, we uh, finished uh, losing 100 games and we came back and was playing for the pennant at the last weekend of the season with a group of people that, that had developed faster mm-hmm. than we thought. And the uh, pitching staff, uh, in some ways, worked some miracles. I think Jeff Ballard that year should have won 20 games. I think he won 18. Um, and uh, that was the closest he ever came to that, but he pitched uh, really well. Um, Bob Malacky, Dave Johnson, people that didn't really have long careers, all of a sudden they put it together in that one particular year. And we almost won the pennant going from last place the year before to first place. Uh, mm-hmm. So you always go into spring training with hope. But uh, um, unlike today, you know, um, I guess you hear in other sports that uh, many of the stars have some in- input into who's, who's plays on their team or not. Um, the front office didn't talk to players, you know, that their job is to, uh, put the team on the field, the manager is to, to manage the team and your job as a player is to play, um, mm-hmm. which, so I never had any input in that. So when you're watching what's happening, we did have a change of, uh, general managers. I think Pat Gillick came in and Pat Gillick had a vision on which, how he wanted to take the team and we signed some players and, uh, um, and we ramped up and, and we thought we had some talent. Um, but we weren't, we weren't sure how good we were going to be. And then as the season started to go on, Jim, Jimmy Key was another player that came in. Mm-hmm. That, Jimmy uh, Key as well, uh, yeah. Should have mentioned him. Yeah, so the pitching, uh, we already had Mike Messina and Ben McDonald. And I think in 95, if you look back on it, we had uh, um, uh, Boomer Wells and uh, Kevin Brown on that staff. And I think we got uh, Scott Erickson. So we had mm-hmm. some arms and we had some – and ultimately Kevin Brown left after 95. Uh, Boomer Wells, uh, you know, um, left as well. But we still had the nucleus of pretty good pitching staff. And then all of a sudden we had some offense, you know, pretty good offense. Uh, you know, and Rafi and uh, Robbie were also mm-hmm. our players uh, that we added to our, uh, to our team. So I thought we, we, could, we could be pretty good. We have to put it together as a team. And we did. 
And uh, we struggled a little bit uh, at first. We made a real strong run at the end of 96 um, to make the playoffs. And I think we made the playoffs on the last day. We uh, um, upset the Cleveland Indians, who was considered one of the better teams that time. And then um, we really should have uh, um, beaten the Yankees that year. That was the Jeffrey Bayer year where uh, it kind of turned the tables. Uh, Jeter's ball to right field. Um, should not have been ruled a home run. It was a uh, fan interference, and uh, we could have conceivably left New York up 2-0 in the series going back home. Mm-hmm. So you never know what would have happened um, uh, from that. But I often think, you know, man, replay was, uh, was a few years too late. <laughs> we should have had yeah. replay back in that time where you could maybe mistake or correct some of the mistakes that were made, um, uh, some of the decisions, and we would have had a better chance in that. But uh, – um, it was easy uh, with that team coming out and trying to figure out how you can make a contribution to win. And I think we knew. And then 97, we, uh, we got out to a really fast start. Um, and uh, we were the best team, um, uh, clearly, uh, in the league in 97. And we ended up uh, winning the first round against Randy Johnson in the playoffs. And then we, we uh, got beat by the Yankees in the second round. You know, we didn't, so we were, we were inches away from going back to the World Series. But uh, – they were really good times to look back on because we had the nucleus of a good team and all of us approached the game um, by saying, what can we do today to help us win? It could be a walk. It could be making a defensive play. Um, it could be the, putting yourself in the right position at the right time mm-hmm. uh, or a ground ball to second base that moves a runner from second to third. Those are the more gratifying times when you're losing, you know, ground ball to second base, moving to third and you don't get the run in and doesn't make a difference in the score. It doesn't make you feel like you've contributed um, in a way that uh, is meaningful. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a sport where, unlike a lot of sports, you're the better players are successful at best a third of the time, right? If you just look mm-hmm. at raw stats, you look at average. Obviously, there's a ton more stats to measure that that modern baseball analysts use. Um, but it has to feel easier to contribute when the team makes the strides that it made between 95 and 96. I want to know, at least in that 96 season, because the team was winning, you did have the streak record in the bag. I know I keep harping on it, but I think it is important to keep the thread of the goal setting and that you did, again, you continued another uh, two, three seasons of doing those games after 95 were there ever any conversations of, okay, we're really winning some ball games. Maybe I should strategically sit. Uh, maybe I should re- get some rest right for the playoffs. Or was it still just, Hey, this is what I know. This is my strategy. I know I can best contribute by being on the field every day. So I never felt that it would benefit me to take a day off. Okay. You know, I will say in that regard, it was interesting. 96 and 97. If you go back and think about it, 96, we had to go to a four-man rotation um, to get to the playoffs. So Mike Messina, who was our best pitcher, um, was going, uh, you know, we eliminated one of our starters. So he was, he was uh, going on f- uh, three days rest. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going on a four-man rotation. And uh, Scott Erickson and Boomer Wells, um, I believe, they were more built. You know, they were stronger, uh, you know, and – um, their style of pitching could uh, – they did really well in that four-man rotation. Um, but Mike Messina, it seemed like uh, it pushed him, you know, uh, to the point. And he gave us his best to get us to the uh, playoffs. But by the time we got to the playoffs, he was, he was a little worn down. But in comparison, the next year, in 97, 
we clinched early enough, and Davey Johnson uh, gave uh, Mike Messina a, um, um, a little pick-me-up. He gave him a rest, took him out um, a little earlier, you know, got him uh, – that rest really was magnificent because uh, Mike Messina was unhittable in the playoffs in 97. Mm-hmm. And we had a huge advantage. We be, ended up beating uh, Randy Johnson twice. I think Mike might have beat him twice. Um, but he was unhittable just by having that rest. But my theory always from a regular player is there's a fine line between rest and rust. <laughs> mm. So, so uh, there were times when uh, we had a few games off because uh, weather kind of canceled games. Um, I remember there was one three-day strike, I think, that happened, and you missed three or four games in a row, and you come back, and you feel like you, uh, you're out of sync. You're, not, you're out of rhythm. And, and for a regular everyday player, you want to feel that feeling in, a bat, in the batter's box that you have it. And it's easy to lose it. And so when you have it, you want to keep playing. And when you don't have it, you want to try to figure out a way to make an adjustment in that game to get it back. And I never thought, thought the answer was sitting down and watching somebody else play. I never thought the answer was, uh, well, let me get a mental break by a day or two and I don't have to worry about um, what I'm doing at the plate or in the field. Maybe this little mini vacation will help me. I, I just wasn't a believer in that. And I never, mm-hmm. never approached it that way. So when it came time to clinching, I'm thinking, okay, I need to keep playing so that I'm ready. It takes it into the playoffs, and I'm ready for the playoffs. Mm-hmm. So uh, I never thought that that was a strategy, that by taking some time off, I would, I would be – in some ways, I do take offense to when, when people say that I had a selfish attitude towards that. Yeah. I would define a selfish attitude, meaning um, Randy Johnson's pitching today, or Roger Clemens is pitching. Uh, we just played 15 innings last night in Boston, and now we got Roger coming out the next game. I have trouble hitting Roger, you know, um, let me take a day off and let the other team, let the rest of the team kind of deal with Roger today. I mean, you Mm -hmm. can beat Roger, but you got to put your best team out there. So if I, if I hand selected 10 days, 10 games off and then play 152 as of one close to 162, I'm sure I would pick the 10, 10 guys that I couldn't hit really well. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And uh, then I'm sure that my stats would seem better you know, as the, uh, as the year, especially your, your batting average stats would go up a little bit and maybe your mental frustration, um, it might be a little easier, but I, but I never thought that that was the right approach, um, at all. It was a sense of responsibility that I'm not just gonna back off because I'm not as good at hitting this guy as I would at another guy. I'll just let my teammates, like you said, deal with it. It was a sense of responsibility. Like I'm going to face this challenge head on because my teammates are counting on me just like any other day. So well, that, that, that was the whole purpose. It was, uh, we all count on each other every day. Mm-hmm. Come to the ballpark um, with the goal of winning that game to that today. And you can't replay yesterday's game. My dad was so famous for telling me, you can learn from it, but you can't replay it. Right. And you can't play tomorrow's game until it gets here. So we might as well worry about this one. And we all count on each other. And, and Eddie Murray taught me, when you're, when, when you're in the position in the batting order that uh, if you're hitting third and Eddie was hitting fourth, there's sort of a significant responsibility. Or if you play short or first, you know, you uh, in, in key moments and executing in the game, you provide intangible value to the, uh, the rest of the team. I can tell you if Eddie Murray, and Eddie Murray was out very few times, but when he was out of the lineup, it felt like our lineup was hollow. You know, mm-hmm. you, had, you had Eddie, a switch hitting clutch hitter, um, at fourth, 
and he allowed me to stay in my role as the third hitter and he allowed the, the first and second hitter or the fifth hitter to stay in their roles. Mm-hmm. They didn't feel like they had to do other responsibilities. So Eddie could be 0 for 70. We wouldn't care. We want Eddie sitting in the middle of that lineup, you know, uh, with a chance to win the game that was, uh, was happening that day. So um, to me, I thought the best thing you can say about um, approaching the game as a everyday player, um, people used to say, uh, they used the expression, you're a gamer. And uh, mm-hmm. gamer, there was a sense of honor to go out there and try to meet the challenges every day. And the example I used earlier was a real-life example of Clements. We, played, we did play 15 innings one night. And I think we had the Boston Marathon early game the uh, next day, which was like 11. Mm-hmm. And you, we go to bed really late. You know, you're exhausted from playing in the game, and yet the turnaround is really quick. And you might be 0 for 16 or 0 for 18 at the time, so you're in a little mini slump. Mm-hmm. You're thinking it's just going to get worse because uh, you got um, Roger pitching. And then you could t- kind of talk yourself into, for all those reasons, it'd be good for me to take this day off. Um, but you go in and say, okay, we, we can beat them, but you want to put the best team on the field to beat them. And I'm one of, the, uh, one of those guys that, uh, that you're relying on. So you push through. Mm-hmm. So in that particular game, I ended up getting a, a, a two-run RBI single to left field and beat Clemens. <laughs> so we beat him, uh, I don't know, three to two or something like that. I had a hit. My expectation, sometimes when your expectations are a little lower and you force yourself through, you surprise yourself in what you're able to do. So there were many examples like that through my career where I felt like the challenge was going to be great. But in the end, you got to say, I'm going to meet that challenge and I'm going to find out what happens. And when, you, mm-hmm. when you're able to do that, sometimes a lot of good stuff um, happens when you least, least expect it. It's a quote that I've read in a, a book that I really like called Think and Grow Rich. Never about a guy who was drilling and drilling and drilling for gold. And, you know, he gave up. He sold his drilling equipment. Then the next guy came in and drilled three more feet and they found a vein of gold. So I was at least like say to myself, and it's hard to remember, never stop drilling three feet from gold. And it sounds like you were always able to keep drilling and keep looking for that gold. When a lot of people would say, where is it? Like, I feel like I'm out in the wilderness right now. I don't know where the next thing is. All right, that's the show. Thank you to Cal Ripken for stopping by and chatting with me. Uh, Next week on Wednesday, we'll be releasing part two of my conversation with Cal. So if you enjoyed uh this week's chat pop on in to finish it up next week and as always rate review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts leave whatever feedback you may have good or bad um the good feedback makes the show more popular and the constructive criticism helps me improve so whatever you got speak your mind on again whatever podcast service you use if you want to talk to me directly i am at pro corner podcast on instagram that's the show's page. And then I'm also at Austin Suroff. That's my personal page. And then if you're just feeling like you want to bang out a huge email, um, uh, head on over to Austin at ProCornerPodcast.com and drop whatever thoughts you may have. Thanks for stopping by.